All right, so good evening. We are in our final session of 2016, our final session of this wave. I, I call them waves. I, I just like the way that sounds to me. Hope you like it too. But if you don't, it's okay, as long as I'm not upsetting you too much. And we will resume on February 1 after the vacation zone, at least, at least in terms of how schools think about the world, and some people actually take vacations too. Uh, we're up to the second and final installment on the book of Psalms. Obviously, one can give many installments on any of these books, Psalms included. Uh, but I wanted to focus on how Tehillim, or how Psalms transform, both of the, and it's, I left it open on purpose, they transform themselves, actually self-transforming prayer mechanisms. It's so cool, and we'll see a few examples of that. And of course, they're supposed to transform us. The idea is that when you pray, you're not supposed to be the same person at the end of the prayer that you were at the beginning. If you are, then something didn't quite happen right. That's hard to do in practice. I'm not saying that it's easy to just get in there and pray and feel transformed all the time. It's very challenging, in fact. All the same, that's at least how the Psalms were written, to try to get us to transform ourselves. That it's not just a matter of rattling off a pile of words. It's about feeling that we have a different relationship with God as a consequence. So we'll start with something that you never find in the entire book of Psalms. I always like nevers and always, despite what they tell you about how often you're supposed to say those two expressions. Here's a never for you. Book of Psalms is a big book. By the way, we count there are 150 chapters. Never, ever, ever will you find a specific prayer by King David or anybody else with naming somebody. When I mean, what I mean by this is the following. Let's say in this past week's parasha, Yaakov was in trouble. Esau is coming at him with 400 men. I shouldn't say he's in trouble. He sure thought he was in trouble, and he might well have been in trouble. It's not clear what, what, what objectively the reality was. He was terrified. And so he prays to God. He says, Hatzileni na miyad miyad esav. God, please save me. From my brother Esau. In a narrative context, that's exactly what you would expect him to say, because that's the person who is, at least as far as he is concerned, threatening him. He's not going to say, save me from my enemies. That's what you say when you're writing the book of Psalms. What you will never find in the book of Psalms, for example, King David, Psalm 3, is at least officially ascribed to when King David was fleeing from his own son, Avshalom. I'm sure that at some point during that flight, he said, God, please save me from Avshalom. That would have been a very reasonable prayer. Wouldn't have even you would not have even needed to be creative. You will never find that verse in the book of Psalms or anything like it. You will never find any prayer specific to a person in any of the prayers, regardless of the type of prayer we're dealing with, for a very obvious reason. Why can you have it in narrative and not in Psalms? They're for us. Yeah, exactly. It could well be that David, when he was fleeing Absalom, said, save me from Absalom. And then when a psalm had to be written, it would say, save me from my enemies. Because we need to be able to use these psalms, even if we're not currently running away from our son Absalom. Hopefully, none of us are ever going to have to do that kind of thing. But there are instances where people have enemies, and we need to be saved from them. So we petition God all the time for that. But it can never be human-specific. So that's one important point. So you can imagine, this is just a hypothetical, but it's a reasonable one, that the authors of the Psalms may have sometimes been inspired to compose Psalms based on personal experience. Wars, illness, happy stuff, you name it. And sometimes not. We'll never know. We don't know if Psalms were inspired by individuals' experiences or not. It could be that David or some other psalmist said, look, Sometimes people are sick. I need to write a prayer that they could recite for God, please heal me. Sometimes people who are sick get better. I need to write a psalm for people who will heal from sickness, a psalm of gratitude. You can imagine psalmists writing things even if they were never sick or at least not really, really, really ill to the point where they needed to compose this psalm. So that's another thing we just need to be aware of. No person-specific verses will ever occur in Psalms. And we don't know the background, if any, to any of the Psalms. We just don't know if there are personal things. Now, another thing that we're going to see right away is that it's it's like, you know, those things where one way it's a duck and one way it's the bunny rabbit, depending on what angle you look at it. Okay, so a lot of Psalms are like that duck and bunny rabbit thing, right? Where if you look at it from one angle, it sounds like this. But if you look at it from a different angle, it sounds like that. Same words, nobody's changing any words, nobody's even fighting over, ride with this, nobody's even fighting over the meaning of the words. And yet, somebody sees a bunny rabbit and somebody somebody sees a duck, and they're both there. Example, Psalm 3, here we are, source number 1 over here. 
a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So that's at least how it starts. The title verse might give background to specifics, but in the psalm you will never see, God, please save me from my son, or save me from Absalom, because suddenly it would be obsolete as a psalm. We need to be, everybody in every generation needs to be able to say this. Verse 2, O Lord, my foes are so many, many are those who attack me. Many say of me, there is no deliverance for him through God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, who holds my head high. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lie down and sleep and wake again, for the Lord sustains me. I have no fear of the myriad forces arrayed against me on every side. Rise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God, for you slap all my enemies in the face. You break the teeth of the wicked. Deliverance is the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people, Selah. Okay, very powerful, and, and like many psalms, very short, right? It's just a very brief but poignant expression of... Something. All right. So, some, tell me. Tell me. What, what do we just read? What, what's the psalm do? Bakasha. It's a bakasha. It's a petition. Okay. Any other possibilities? It's certainly one of them. Where did he change? Where was this transitional moment in this psalm, mood-wise? Yeah, he answers me from his holy mountain, Selah. In verse five, there's a transition. At the beginning, he sounds like he's terrified. Right, the first verses two, three, four, it's like, whoa, this is horrible. Then in verse four, he says, but God, you're, you're here to protect me. I feel answered. And suddenly he feels like he's in a much better mood. He's much more confident about the whole thing. Now the Hebrew, here it's important to just get the Hebrew read. If you look at verse five in the Hebrew, Pasuke right below, I call out to God. What does Vaya'aneni mean? He answered me. The straight reading of Vayaneni is he answered me. Well, wait a minute. I thought he was beset with enemies and he's in a lot of trouble. When did he have a chance to be saved? Vayaneni literally means in its simplest form, and he answered me. But I thought he wasn't saved yet. I thought the whole psalm was a bakasha. It's a petition that he's in trouble and he's pleading to God to save him. Well, those who think that it is a petition will say that vayaneni is actually a special verb tense that in English we call the prophetic past. That he hasn't been saved yet. He's still in trouble. The enemies are still as much there as they were in verse 4. Nothing has changed circumstance-wise. But he feels that he will be saved. And so he could speak about it as though it has happened already. It's called prophetic past, meaning it's not past tense, it's future. What it really means is, God, you will save me. That's all it means. But he's so confident or assured somehow that he will be saved that he talks about it as though it happened already. Now, our comment... Yeah, sorry, Susan. Um, what, doesn't that happen a lot in, in the Bible where the when the Bible is before that past, so-called past form, it changes it? You are straight up right. By ya'aneni, meaning ya'aneni without the va, is, sounds like future tense. He will answer me. Va'ya'aneni then becomes he answered me. So you're exactly right. But then what's weird is, but he hasn't been saved yet, has he? So one track is, you're right, he hasn't been saved yet, but this is the prophetic past, meaning that he's writing about it with confidence as though he has been saved already. That's amazing. Now, where did that confidence come from? Two verses ago, he was a mess. And rightly so. He has all these armies arrayed against him, and in this particular case, backdrop-wise, his own son's armies, which makes it way worse. Where exactly did this confidence come from? Yeah, I'm not sure this is the right, but it comes from an abiding faith. The deepest kind of faith he has in his relationship with God, and he only saved that because of that. Faith. Very good. So that's that's where this is going. So one track, one track of how to understand what what took place is he prayed, and once he brings God into the equation, he's not alone anymore. He hasn't been saved yet, and the truth of the matter is, he doesn't really know if God is going to save him or not in a, on a human level, but in the prayer itself, once at the beginning he's all alone, God is nowhere, he's terrified, once you start to pray, all of a sudden, poof he feels better, it's like, okay, God is with me now I can actually deal with my adversaries hey, Robert? Would you just trust, uh, conjugate that word in the past Pro- Vayaneni literally would have meant 
and he answered me, past tense. What it really, but prophetic past then means, it's written in a past tense form, but it means he will answer me, and I'm sure of it. He's writing about a future salvation as though it has happened already. That's what prophetic past is. Not he will have answered me. He will answer me. He will He will answer me. He will save me, in other words. It's future, but it's written with confidence as though it happened already. I don't know how to conjugate it, but that's what. But you would just translate it as "He will save me." In other words, but but it's written with a past tense form. I don't I don't wanna, I don't want to fuss with the grammar. But Robert's asking the right points. I just want to make sure that I'm translating it right for you. Okay, so then that's one track of interpretation here. That is mere. The fact that he's praying is what makes him feel together. He makes him feel transformed. And now suddenly he's able to confront his enemies with a whole different attitude. A second track of interpretation that is the bunny rabbit duck thing. Some commentators are convinced by his confidence at the end. This psalm was written as a psalm of gratitude after he was saved already. Thanks. And at the beginning of the psalm, he's simply remembering how terrified he was. Same words, nobody's interpreting any word any differently. Mm-hmm. They're understanding that, in fact, he was saved. So now it's not going back to Robert's question. In verse 5, he's saying, Vayaneni means he did save, he, he really saved me already. I'm already home in my palace or wherever. Home from victory. He saved me. It's real past tense. It's not prophetic past. And that the initial verses are just recalling how terrified he was and how he prayed. But now he's saying, God, thank you. When I was in distress, I prayed. I felt better, you saved me, and now I feel great. Thank you for salvation. So you can read this very same psalm as a psalm of petition. If you're in trouble, you might want to turn to Psalm 3. Whoa, King David was in trouble once. He prayed to God. God saved him. God, please save me like you saved King David. That's the way we might use a psalm like this. Or, if we've been rescued from some danger, we might say, oh, this psalm is a psalm of gratitude. And thank you, God, for helping me the way that you helped King David. Amazingly enough, you could take these nine verses without doing a thing interpretively and see it as a psalm of petition or a psalm of gratitude without even needing gymnastics. Look, there are other psalms that are pure psalms of gratitude. There are other ones that are pure psalms of petition. But there are a lot that are like this. And the moral of this psalm is very straightforward. Prayer is what transforms. The mere fact that that the psalmist brings God into the equation makes him feel better about the whole thing. So that's track A. We move down to track B. For this, oh wait, one other cool transformation. Radak, one of the great commentators of the 13th century, this is Rabbi David Kimchi, one of the greatest commentaries of all time. And, you know, the person who's probably getting the greatest nachat from, from Radak is his father, Rabbi Yosef Kimchi, who himself was a Tanakh commentator of the first rank. But his son, David, was so much greater that Rav Yosef Kimchi goes down in history as Radak's father. Right? You know, it, it was very clear to everybody from the get-go. Radak vastly eclipsed his father. And I'm sure that Rav Yosef Kimchi was the proudest father around. I mean, talk about it. 13th century pr- proud dads, he is one of them. Just to know that one of his sons really became one of the all-time greats. So Radak says that there's another transformation. This is based on the history of the interpretation of the first word of the psalm, which is mizmor. How do you translate mizmor? So the English did a good job. A psalm of David. Okay, fine, thanks. What is a psalm? How do you translate psalm? Given that we have the book of psalms here. Definitely holy poems, and I, you're way ahead of the game. It took our commentators a while to get, I mean, they knew that part, but they to translate the word, there are 57 psalms in the book of Psalms that are prefaced with this word mizmor. It is by far the most common introduction. For a long time, yeah, sorry, Sammy. Oh, is it a psalm? Yes, yeah, So again, so we're way ahead of our learning curve. For a very long time in Jewish history, our interpreters starting in the Talmud and Rashi and Ibn Ezra for a while translated the word mizmor as a Happy song. And then they got to psalms like this, and I'm like, uh, it doesn't sound so happy to me. What do you do? And then either you have to say, no, it's a psalm of salvation. He's already happy about it. Or at least he got happier because he prayed, and now he's confident that he's going to win. Other interpretations abound. In other words, commentators, they have 57 psalms where they need to do this, where they have the word mizmor at the beginning of it, psalm, and they translated it to mean a happy song. 
Meiri in the 13th century was the one who objected very strenuously, Rabbi Menachem HaMeiri. And he said, no, look around. You see, some of them are happy, some are sad, some have both. Just translate it as song. So thankfully, we're living after the 13th century, so Samuel was able to say that matter-of-factly. No fuss, no muss, because we're used to it for the last seven, eight hundred years. But for a while, we were not used to it. And it would have been if you would have said that 900 years ago when I was trying to do this, I would have said, what are you talking about? It means happy song. That's what we all think. And then you'd have to hurl evidence against me. I'll be like, oh, yeah, you're right. And that would have been the end of that. Yeah, Shari? I'm not sure. But I'm playing out this idea right now. Okay. And it seems as if in that context it's, it's translatable as the one who... Uh, All right, that's. A, I think we're going. I think we're going. I think we're going far afield for, no, for the I'm point. Of, is, yeah. Not so much as Zamir. Zamir is more. Is more is I understand. More I understand what you're doing. Right. Music like happy. It's just a suggestion of there's something in a different kind of mode because we listen to music and absorb music. That this is from the person who gives you the music. Okay. Fair okay. enough. Fair enough, but, but but I think it's taking us far afield. I think I think what matters for our purposes is the history of this interpretation. So back in the day before Meiri said that Mizmor just means song, Yevradak, who's just an older contemporary of Meiri, he still thought it meant happy song. But then he looks at the words and he's like, hey, I don't think this is so happy. He's terrified. So here's what he says in, in Source 3. According to the plain sense of the text, songs were not called psalms at the time they were composed, but rather once they became temple liturgy. Regarding those psalms regarding David, he composed while he composed them while in danger. After he was saved, they became psalms of praise and gratitude to God. What I was trying to do before is say that the psalm itself is a bunny and a duck. That it actually is composed with this dual meaning. That there's an element of you could use it as a petitionary prayer, or you could also use it as a psalm of gratitude, depending on where you're at. And that's how the psalm is composed. Radak, like many of our early commentators, thought that David actually wrote this psalm with one state of mind. In other words, he's thinking either it's petition or it's gratitude. And he thinks it's the petition one. Well, if it's a petition one, how could it be a happy song? So he answers, when David wrote this psalm, he didn't call it a mizmor. He called, he just prayed. It was only when this psalm was later sung in the temple that they added the word mizmor to it. Now it becomes a happy song. Now it became used in the temple service as a psalm of gratitude. So according to Radak, King David thought it was a duck and the temple singers thought it was a bunny. And that there was a transformation over time in its meaning. What I'm trying to argue is that the original intent of the author is bunny and the duck. That both of these meanings are built in simultaneously. So this is all part of how psalms can transform. Part of it is the psalm itself has a transitional point because prayer makes one transform. You feel God closer. Part of it is that a meaning of a psalm could evolve over time, as Radak thinks, that it might mean petition to one prayer and praise or gratitude to another. And that brings us to Psalm 6, where we're going to see all of these patterns again, but another, another wrinkle. This happens to be the psalm that Ashkenazic Jews recite as the Tachanun every weekday morning when the Tachanunim are said. Petitionary prayers are, or supplicatory prayers are said. Sfaradim typically reads Psalm 25. It's a different psalm that is in play for Sfaradim, but Ashkenazim reads 6. So here we go. For the leader, with instrumental music on the Sheminit, some kind of instrument, a psalm of David. O oh Lord, do not punish me in anger. Do not chastise me in fury. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I languish. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones shake with terror. My whole being is stricken with terror, while you, Lord, oh, how long? Okay, so if we stopped here, what kind of prayer do we have going on? It's a bakasha also. It's a petitionary prayer, perhaps with even a tone of protest. God, I'm sick of being sick, or I'm sick of my enemies, whatever exactly the problem is. It could be illness, it could be enemies, it could be both. But he's saying, oh, how long? You know, I've been crying for a while about this and nobody's answering me. I'm still sick. I'm still in trouble. Okay, verse 5. Oh, Lord, turn, rescue me. Deliver me as befits your faithfulness. Now he turns to God and asks him for help. Why should you help me? For there is no praise of you among the dead in Sheol. Who can acclaim you? Okay, God, why do you need to save me? For your sake. Yeah, if I die, then I can't praise you anymore. So you want me to be alive, God. Don't you want me to continue to pray? It's kind of like a, it's, it's, it's pleading with God in that sense. 
I am weary with groaning. Every night I drench my bed. I melt my couch in tears. My eyes are wasted by vexation, worn out because of all my foes. Away from me, all you evildoers, for the Lord heeds the sound of my weeping. The Lord heeds my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be frustrated and stricken with terror. They will turn back in an instant, frustrated. Okay, so once again, he starts off miserable. He's crying. He's either ill or threatened by enemies or both. Whatever's going on. He prays to God. And where's the turning point in this psalm? Verse 9. Everybody agree? Okay, okay, okay. Let other people have a chance. Yeah? Okay, good. So that might, might be that you even want to push it further down. So either 9 or 10, this is definitely a different mood of the psalmist, right? For a while he's miserable. He feels completely abandoned by God. He pleads to God. And verses 9, 10, 11 are all of a sudden confidence, happiness again. And lo and behold, you have the same discussion of our commentators of the bunny and duck thing, whether the psalm is written for gratitude after you've been saved or whether it was written as a petitionary prayer. Same exact discussion there. Let me let me let me ride with this for a little while. Let me ride with this for a little while. So that's the standard. That's the standard debate that you're going to find dozens of times through the commentators on the Psalms until 2012. It's a good thing we live after 2012, or else I would not be able to tell you this side. Rabbi Elchanan Samet, who I view as, as, as I think he's the greatest of the Tanakh people in the world today, but at the very least, he's certainly way on up there. Rabbi Elchanan Samet alive today in Israel. He taught in Malia Dumim's Yeshiva for a while in Birkat Moshe. He teaches now in Mechlelet Herzog, part of Yeshivat Haratziyam, what many people just call the Gush. You know, they have a teaching institute there, so he teaches there as well. So Rabbi Samet published his book on Psalms in 2012, and that's that's what changed changed my view of this particular Psalm. He's changed my view on a lot of stuff. And because he, he's, he's just, he's so good. But in the meantime, he's good over here also. So I want to present what he has to say about this. He disagrees with the centuries and centuries of the bunny duck discussion for this psalm. You know, everybody's discussing how, once again, prayer transforms and makes him feel better. He says, no, that's not what happens in this psalm at all. Let's go back and do it again. He starts off just as miserable as in Psalm 3. For the leader, we're just reading it again, source, uh, source 4. With instrumental mu- music on the Shemini, the Psalm of David. O oh Lord, do not punish me in anger. Do not chastise me in fury. Have mercy on me, O oh Lord, for I languish. Heal me, O oh Lord, for my bones shake with terror. My whole being is stricken with terror while you, Lord. Ha- oh, how long? O oh Lord, turn, rescue me, deliver me as befits your faithfulness. All right, where's the transition going to happen? Well, right now. Just like midway through the thing, he's protested, he says he's miserable. I'm waiting for him to turn confident now. I'm waiting for verses 9 and 10 to be right over there in verse 6. And he's right, Rav Samet is correct. That's not what happens though, right? What happens instead? Well, 6 is still part of that, sorry. For there is no praise of you among the dead in Sheol, who can acclaim you? Okay, now comes the moment where he should suddenly feel great. Instead, I am weary with groaning. Every night I drench my bed. I melt my couch in tears. My eyes are wasted by vexation, worn out because of all my foes. Instead of feeling better about life, he just cries his eyes out. He's making his couch damp. Right? I mean, it's an, it's an amazing imagery to describe just how miserable how miserable he is. Rav Samet says there are times that you pray and you don't feel answered. And that's what this psalm is. This psalm, instead of transforming, like in Psalm 3, as soon as he prayed, oh, he felt way better. Well, here, he did the prayer thing, but instead of transforming, he didn't feel answered at all. In fact, he still felt very ill, or he still felt felt beset by enemies, depending on what's going on over here. So what transforms him in this psalm? His tears. First he prays, doesn't get him too far. Then he just breaks down crying. He's at absolute rock bottom. And at that moment, he turns around. And Rav Samet quotes the Talmud in source number five. It says that the, psalm, the, the prayer that comes from tears is actually the deepest prayer of all. So if you look at source five, Rabbi Elazar also said, from the day on which the temple was destroyed, the gates of prayer have been closed. In other words, since the temple has been destroyed, sorry, God doesn't accept prayers anymore. As it says, yea, when I cry and call for help, he shuts out my prayers. 
one of the many depressing verses that you will find in the Book of Lamentations, where which is written at the time of the destruction of the temple, where they feel completely abandoned by God. So they say, once the temple was destroyed, that's it. God has shut the gates of prayer. But though the gates of prayer are closed, the gates of weeping are not closed. As it says, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Keep not silence at my tears. So whereas on the one hand, there's a barrier erected, according to this Talmud, between God and Israel after the temple is destroyed, not the gates of tears. The gates of tears go right to heaven. And so Rabbi Samet argues that's basically what Psalm 6 is trying to achieve on a personal level. So, so far we've seen how a psalm can be petition and praise at the same time. We've seen how it could be a depressing or sad psalm at the beginning and transform into a happier one in liturgy when it was brought into the temple. We see how sometimes prayer transforms the person totally and makes them feel better. And sometimes it just doesn't. And then it takes the cry, rock-bottom cry of the person who is in need to finally break through that barrier and feel that you've reached God. And that's what Psalm 6 is all about. Now we get down to source number six. There's another one that we recite daily in our services. Psalm 30. So it's source six. Yes, yeah, it's very good timing. A Psalm of David. We say it daily, but also on Hanukkah. A Psalm of David. A song for the dedication of the house. I extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. And not let my enemies rejoice over me. Here he's praising God. Okay, it's much more cheerful than the last two we've read. Right? Oh Lord my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. Oh Lord, you brought me up from Sheol, preserved me from going down into the pit. Oh you faithful of the Lord, sing to him and praise his holy name. For he is angry but a moment, and when he is pleased there is life. One may lie down weeping at nightfall, but at dawn there are shouts of joy. Okay, so if you stopped here, what is this psalm about? This is praise and gratitude, big time. It's more gratitude even than praise. Praise is God, you are great. Right? Which often is built into just about any psalm. Right? This is more gratitude, hodaya. This is where we're thanking God for things. In this particular case, there were some woes. In this case, near-death experiences of the psalmist, whether it be illness or enemies, whatever's going on. And he's very grateful that God saved him. This psalm opens up in a very positive, happy Spirit, as opposed to the first two that started off in a very terrified spirit. Somebody sounded like he was really in trouble. But this psalm then marches on, and that's what makes it so fascinating. Very often we read this psalm at such record speed in the morning, it's hard to appreciate it. That's why there's, there's a time to learn and there's a time to pray, and then if you learn it, then your prayer is also better. It's actually a good system. And so that's what I enjoy about learning psalms. Although I warn my students when I teach psalms, one of the hazards that you have in praying, which is an okay hazard to have, is that sometimes you get so engrossed in a learning problem while you pray, then it's hard to pray. Right? In other words, during prayer, it's really important to understand it and go, right? and, and actually try to connect to God there, but, but the learning is certainly very important. So when you learn this psalm, you get on to verse 7 over here, when it says, When I was untroubled, I thought, I shall never be shaken. For you, O Lord, when you were pleased, made me firm as a mighty mountain. When you hid your face, I was terrified. I call to you, O Lord, to my Lord I made appeal. What is to be gained from my death, from my descent into the pit? Can dust praise you? Can it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. O Lord, be my help. You turned my lament into dancing. You undid my sackcloth and girded me with joy, that my whole being might sing hymns to you endlessly. O Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. So what do you have, Megan? This is like the third time that a mighty man in our religion uh, said this uh, same thing. Uh, uh, like, uh, you know, you, you're going to look bad if I die. That kind of thing. And that Moses said that. Uh, or if you kill the people, everybody right. around will... It's, it's like a kind, of, a kind of a common argument. And it's a very common a argument. One too. It's really yeah, excellent. God listens to that one. Exactly. You're, you're, no, you're, you're absolutely right. This yeah, is the personal version of the... To one of those yeah, yeah. sinful cities. There. No, no, it's, it's a very common thing. This is a personal one, meaning that here's an individual saying, God, I'm praying to you to save my life so that I can continue to pray, pray to you. If I die, then I can't anymore. So don't you want me to keep me alive? As opposed to Moses' argument, which is save the nation. So they stand as an, a testament to your miracles, and if they go, well, you look terrible, and that's the end of the story, right? So that's the national version of that. So here we go. What just happened in this second half of the psalm? I thought he was happy and saved and singing God's praises. What just happened? Stayed 
skepticism? Hmm? Is he stating his skepticism? How so, Roberta? Well, when I was not troubled, I thought I'll never be shaken. In other words, um, he thought that he was strong and that he was able to cope. Excellent. So, so scroll back. When did he say that? Let's imagine, let, 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 me, let me phrase it this way. To me, there's always a now of the psalm. I thought the now of the psalm was he's saved already. In other words, he's now home, feeling or healed, or whatever happened. Whatever woe, death, you know, death, deathly threat that he had is gone. He's very grateful to God. That's the now of the psalm. So when he speaks in verse 7, go with what you're saying, Roberta. When I was untroubled, I thought I shall never be shaken. When is that vis-a-vis the now of the psalm? Is that an ongoing part of the story, or is he looking backwards? He's flashing. It's a flashback. What you're saying, you're right, it's a flashback. What's happening here is the psalm could have stopped after verse 6, and it would have been lovely, right? It's a beautiful psalm of gratitude to God. But now he's looking back to a period when he wasn't yet in trouble. And what was his problem? Hmm? What was his problem? In other words, he's actually reflecting on his state at earlier earlier stages of this saga. If we had to reconstruct the saga, here's what happened. He was doing great for a while. Then he got into trouble. He prayed and then he was saved and now he's thanking God. And now is that he's thanking God. But he started off happy, good. But then he hid his face. Huh? God hid his face. And why did God hide his face? Yeah. No, I was just saying, first of all, to me it reflects the fact that he, he had taken things for granted. That it would always be that way, but in fact, he found out the other, it was not that way. Correct. He's humbled. What happened is he's, he's actually criticizing himself. He's saying, back in the good old yes. days, I was arrogant because I was always healthy or I was never in trouble. And I said, oh, I'm invincible. Yeah. He's actually regretting his bad attitude in the pre-Psalm. He's looking back and saying, oh man, I was way too overconfident. And then verse 8, For you, O Lord, when you were pleased, made me firm as a mighty mountain. At the beginning, I was doing great. When you hid your face, I was terrified. Then I got into trouble, and I realized, wait a second, I'm not invincible at all. I'm completely vulnerable, and I need you, God. And that's why I prayed. Verse 9, I called to you, O Lord. To, To my Lord I made appeal. What is to be gained from my death, from my descent into the pit? And thus praise you, can it declare your faithfulness? So now he's reminiscing. First about his arrogance pre-any trouble. Then he got into trouble and realized, whoa, I'm completely dependent on God. What was I thinking? God, okay, now I know I'm completely dependent on you. Please help. Verse 11. Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. O Lord, be my help. He's still just remembering the prayer that he said when he was in danger. You turned my lament into dancing. You undid my sackcloth and girded me with joy. And you saved me from this problem. That my whole being might sing hymns to you endlessly. O Lord my God, I will praise you forever. So the verse 13 finally gets us back to the now, which is he's grateful to God and praising him. The first half of the psalm is where he's at now. He's very grateful. But he adds so much dimension. Instead of just praising God for some nondescript salvation, he's reflecting, he's doing some soul searching. Now that I'm saved, what have I learned from my experiences? It's a process. Yeah, keep going, Shelley. Yeah. Very good. So just to play with what Shelley is saying, it's like the first part of the psalm is this is what we do when good things happen. We thank God. Here's an excellent model for that. But then there's also the mode of, and when things are going well, never forget how dependent we are on God. Right? It's like, this is what I learned from my experience. I forgot that fact. I was doing so well, I was so invincible that I felt, okay, top of the world, everything is great. And then once I fell apart and you hid your face, going back to Elias's point, and suddenly I was in danger, that's when I realized, oh, how silly of me. I'm totally dependent on God all the time. It's a great way to start morning prayers, actually. Here we are, let's say we're feeling great. So we thank you, God, for all that we're feeling great, and we appreciate that we're feeling great. It's it's not enough just to say thank you, it's also to appreciate when times are good. And that's what the psalm is really trying to do. So that's layer one of just understanding the psalm. Now, 
Here's actually a big difference between Svaradim and Ashkenazim in their liturgy. Svaradim and Ashkenazim both read this psalm daily, right? But most Svaradim don't recite the title verse in, in daily liturgy. Meaning, most Svaradim begin with verse 2, Arumim Khan, and so on. I will extol you. They skip the first verse. Ashkenazim read verse 1. That's a minhag thing. Everything is cool. It's all fine. This happens all the time. Just like Ashkenazim who recite Psalm 6, by the way, in Tachanun, they start with verse 2. They don't read the title verse there either. So there are different times that title verses can be skipped. But I'll tell you that if you're a very attentive person who prays, Svardim are much happier as a result of not having to say the title verse, and I'll tell you why. The title verse makes no sense for two major reasons. Ashkenazim, I'm sure, who pray every single morning, they're plagued by this problem, right? Because they have to read the title verse, and the title verse makes no sense. It's a beautiful title verse, a psalm of David, verse 1 again, right? A song for the dedication of the house. What's the double whammy of this title verse problem? First thing is, King David did not build the temple. Solomon did. So how in the world can King David be composing a psalm at the dedication of the house? He never saw the dedication of the house. He knew that his son would build it, and by the way, that's what many commentators do here. But he didn't. He wasn't at any house dedication, right? King Solomon built his son. Solomon built the temple. David never did. The bigger problem, as far as I'm concerned, because you can solve the first problem a little more readily, is the psalm that we just read has zero to do with the temple dedication. Zero. It has to do with salvation from either war or from an illness or both gratitude for that. It's an excellent psalm. Without verse 1, it's, it works great. We just had a wonderful shiur on that. We could have moved on to the next thing. But now I'm stuck on verse 1 because here it is. Verse 1 has plagued our commentators for about a thousand years. Coming up with all sorts of solutions, trying to figure out, what do you do here? Okay, so yeah, King David could have anticipated the temple because Solomon, you know, he knew about Solomon. He, gave, he fathered him and he knew that his son would succeed him. Some commentators are so desperate here that even though it sounds like our JPS translator was correct in capitalizing the word house, Chanukah Abayit means the house, a.k.a. the temple, but maybe it actually refers to when King David built his own palace. And just like you and I might have a Chanukah Abayit, a house dedication ceremony, maybe King David said this psalm when he opened up the doors of his own palace, which is something that he did live to. That's how desperate we got over the last thousand years, because even though it sounds like it's about the temple, and that would make a lot more sense given, after all, a liturgical psalm, what are you going to have about a housewarming ceremony? It's all about the temple. That's, that's where these psalms are being performed. And so our commentators for a very, very, very long time debated this, battled over this, ran in circles, until finally Rabbi Amos Chacham in the previous generation, who wrote the Dat Mikra commentary on psalms, after serving 900 years worth of commentary, he just says, very simple, lo barur, it's unclear. And that's his solution to this, this problem. And then he just moves on to the verse 2, which is what, you know, the, the rest of the body of the psalm, as much, as much more, you have a lot more to talk about. He just gave up. So that means we haven't really uh, gotten a whole lot. Malbim, by the way, in the 19th century, was so bothered by all of the solutions that preceded him, he came up with a very clever one, which says... You know, everybody thinks it means a building, either the temple or his house, but none of those answers really work. I know, again, very in- ingenious answer, but it shows the desperation that we're under here also. Malbim suggested in the 19th century that it refers to, you know, how your body is kind of like the house yes, for your soul? That's what you're thinking? Yes, it's the Good. abode of the soul. Beautiful. So you and Malbim, you got it. So, so Malbim, Malbim would smile. Good. So Malbim, Malbim would be very proud of you. Uh, the go. Okay. Good. Well, very good. Very creative indeed. Uh, so Malbim takes it to mean the dedication of the house means the dedication of his body when he healed from his illness, yes. and suddenly whoop, flows beautifully. The upside of that interpretation is it actually makes it very smooth. Right? You could just imagine King David may have gotten ill. God healed, and voila, now is the downside of it is, there's a reason why nobody before Malvin thought of this answer, meaning it sounds like it's talking about the temple. Right, yeah, Ron? Maybe it will make sense in some future time. And it, and it will refer to the temple. And it will? And it will refer to the temple. 
convert to the temple, and then it will make perfect sense. Oh, so what you're saying actually is closer to where we can take this today. We have a better sense of how these psalms are put together and how they might have been worked out than this ongoing saga. And what you're saying is actually, the 12th century commentator Ibn Ezra actually quoted, he says, Yesh Omrim, some say what you just said. But that actually can be put into action. There are two basic solutions to this problem that don't require any stretching at all. And to me, whenever you don't need to stretch and you can solve a 900-year-old problem, you're having a good day. So here are two, here are two, here are two solutions. One we actually talked about last week, and it applies directly to this psalm as well. Yes, sorry, Sammy. Oh, so you're right to criticize this translation, which is making it simpler. That's why he's doing what he's doing. But you're right, and you're hitting on the second answer. So the two of you actually hit on the two answers that take us a lot further along. Your Tamamikrat thing is critical to understanding the second answer. I'm not going to go into that technicality because that's a technicality, but it's an important one. Okay, so before we get there, we have a simple solution to this sort of problem, which is, we talked about it last week, when it says, Mizmor le David. So what could le David mean? It could either be a psalm of David that he wrote it, or a psalm to him. So it could be, without having to blink twice, that at a future temple dedication ceremony, even King Solomon's, somebody dedicated this psalm to David. It's an ode to David. Thank God we've reached the point of defeating our enemies and being able to build the temple. King David didn't write it. That's one simple solution to this. To say that a later writer either in the first or second temple, whichever whichever makes you happier, is dedicating a psalm in memory of King David. And who better? King David is an excellent person to memorialize with regard to the temple. Because after all, King David really wanted to build it, you may recall. He really wanted to build it. God wouldn't let him. But it's a nice tribute to this king who paved the way for the temple to write a psalm saying, thank you, God, for saving us from all of our woes. We had some arrogance in the past, so on and so forth. That's one answer, and it's a very easy answer. But what Sammy is hitting upon is, I think, a, a closer to the mark what's going on over here, which is what Radak actually was positing just with regard to the word Mizmor back in source three or four, whatever it was. Not, not Definitely not four, so I guess three. Yep, source three. It could be that this psalm transformed. And that's the theme of tonight anyway. What do I mean? If you take away verse one... I think we would all quickly agree that this is a psalm of the individual who has recently been saved from some deadly danger, whether it's enemies or whether it's an illness. That's what the psalm was written for. It's a private prayer, thanking God big time for salvation. Now imagine this. Some future point down the line, the psalm is already on the books and it's being used by individuals who are healed and saved from war all the time. And it comes time to build the temple, maybe even the second one. And they've just been through a terrible exile. And the Jewish people thought that they were for sure going to die as a people. And suddenly they're building of the second temple. And they say, you know, this psalm really speaks to us. We were, we were overconfident in that first temple period. We thought we had it made. I think where you, were, where you were driving with this also. We felt great. We thought we were totally invulnerable. Nothing will ever happen to us. Boy, were we wrong. We were arrogant. We sinned. We got exiled. We were in trouble. We were at the brink of death. And that's when we realized, God, help us. We're in the Babylonian exile. We're going to disappear forever. And you saved us. You brought us back and we rebuilt the temple. Thank you for healing us from our illness. Thank you for saving us from our enemies as a nation. So what you were saying with regard to the Tamiya Mikra, you can imagine, if you picture the history of this psalm, at some very early stage it might have just said, Mizmor le David, a psalm of David. And that's all it ever was. It was just Mizmor le David, thank you for rescuing me from illness or enemies. Once the second temple was built, somebody added those three words of Shir Chanukah Tabayit, a song for the dedication of the temple. And they inserted those words into the introduction, transforming the psalm from gratitude of the individual to gratitude of the nation. Cool move. 
This is proposed in various forms by Nachum Sarna, the professor of, of Bible at Brandeis, who died a few years ago, and Rabbi Elkanan Samet also. Several other contemporary writers understand that this psalm could have had one totally different intent when it was composed. It was for the individual. And later on, the nation co-opted it and transformed it and added these three words to make it relevant for them. By the way, the Ashkenazic custom of reading Psalm 6, which is, is source number 4, it probably is also intended as the nation is ill and the nation is crying for help. Even though the psalm itself reads like an individual who is sick or an individual who is in trouble, by putting it into the liturgy of the Tachanun, of the supplicatory prayers, there's very little doubt in my mind that whoever made that move was reading that psalm as a national prayer. God, please save us from our woes rather than save me from my personal woes. Yeah. Uh, I think one thing that maybe is the language is the order of the words themselves, which I see now given what you just quoted is true also for Okay, fine, yeah. I'm going to say, why do we see it as follows? Since it's the last word, why not that maybe this is what implicitly Malbina was getting to when he said it's we're praising singing about the building of David's house meaning his soul his okay fine so again so Malbim says that yeah well that's what I'm saying because everything else seems to be ignored because it's the David is at the end not the beginning okay fine yeah so now, so now we have three psalms, and we have totally different things going on in terms of how the psalms can transform. One is the bunny duck thing, that it can be petition or praise or gratitude simultaneously. Second one is that sometimes prayer itself is what transforms, but sometimes it takes tears also to make that happen. You don't always feel heard. The third one is that you have, first of all, just a flashback feature, which is really awesome about Psalm 30. There are a few others that do that as well, where in addition to the gratitude that one expresses toward God, there's the introspection that comes with the salvation, which is really neat. And then just the transformation of a psalm from the personal to the national, that the nation of Israel itself began to identify with the personal story of the psalm. Let's do one more for tonight, and that is Psalm 51, one of the most powerful psalms in the whole book because it's dealing with the whole Bathsheba saga. uh, Source 7, Psalm 51 this is. For the leader, a psalm of David. When Natan the prophet came to him after he had come to Bathsheba. So again, this psalm is set in terms of here's what King David was saying immediately after getting blasted by the prophet for doing the terrible sins that he did. So the psalm really begins in verse 3. Have mercy upon me, O God, as if it fits your faithfulness, and keeping with your abundant compassion, blot out my transgressions. He feels consumed by sin, and so he asks God for forgiveness. Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity, and purify me of my sin. And he goes on for a while about that. O Lord, open my lips, and let my mouth declare your praise. What's that in Hebrew? Which we customarily recite at the beginning of every single Amidah. That's where it comes from. So it's a beautiful verse anyway, but if you know what psalm it's coming from, it's a lot more powerful. The idea is that King David, after he has sinned with Bathsheba, feels absolutely unable to stand before God, and I really don't blame him for feeling that way. He did terrible things. He feels like his relationship with God has been completely jeopardized. So in addition to pleading with God to wash away the sin, create a new heart in him and all of that, he's saying, God, please help me pray. I can't even pray to you straight anymore. And this is King David talking. And you really see, and by our putting that in front of our Amidah, it's obviously supposed to be very humbling. Here we are about to stand in God's presence and say the Amidah, as we do a minimum of three times a day. But before we do that, we recite what King David recited after feeling completely deflated. It's like, God, we need help praying. Which is a beautiful, beautiful line, if we, if we, if we, if we, if we again, just to give pause in front of the Amidah and to understand its origin, it, it, it just adds to the experience of what the people who put it in are trying to do. So we understand that David is completely overwhelmed by his sin, that he has sinned terribly. He's begging God to wipe out the transgressions. Please do it, and then I'll teach other people how to repent. He throws in in the middle of the psalm, and then he says, please help me pray. You do not want me to bring sacrifices. You do not desire burnt offerings. True sacrifice to God is a contrite spirit, God. Excuse me, contrite spirit. God, you will not despise a contrite and crushed heart. 
God, I understand you, because I've read the prophets. The prophets' ongoing slogan from time immemorial is, David lived before the prophets. But the prophets all have the same message, which is, God loves sacrifice, but only when it is accompanied by the religious ethical lifestyle that the Torah demands. God does not ever want sacrifices to be a barter system, where you feed God and then he pardons you even if you're rotten. So David is reflecting the prophetic value here. He says, look, I know that I've sinned, so just going to a temple and bringing sacrifices, that's not what you want. You want me to actually repent, which is exactly what any prophet would have told him to do. So he understands that message very, very, very well. Verse 20, may it please you to make Zion prosper, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will want sacrifices offered in righteousness, burnt and whole offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, these two verses are just so strange. They're beautiful in their own right. In fact, in Ashkenazic tradition, there's It's a good thing I didn't become a chazan. But in the meantime, it's a beautiful melody, though. I, I, I always like hearing it when I hear it. Uh, it's part of the Torah taking out ceremony. What do these, what do those verses mean? What, what it says, please rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and then you will be able, then you will want sacrifices. Yeah? Well, but why is David, in this time period, why is he saying rebuild? Oh. Yeah, that's the problem. The, the, the verses themselves make great sense. They're beautiful, they're beautiful verses, but they make zero sense in King David's time because the walls were alive and well. Right? King David is the one who is famed for many things, including that he was the capturer of Jerusalem. He's the one who finally got into the walled fortress. But the wall stood. He didn't knock down the walls. And if he did, in order to capture it, he could have rebuilt them himself. He's now the king. The walls were fine. The walls would not be broken until Nebuchadnezzar of Babylonia destroyed them some four, five hundred years after, well, four, more like four hundred years, four hundred years after King David. Then the walls are broken and now they need to be rebuilt. Now, Tivnech HaMod Yerushalayim, what does Tivnech mean? It just means build, right? So this translation by saying rebuild is adding a bit. Tivnech HaMod Yerushalayim means to build the walls of the city. And he, but the translator is assuming, well, it must have been after they were broken, yeah? Anyway, it's still very perplexing. And here's the other problem. Then you will want sacrifices offered in righteousness, burnt and whole offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. What does it sound like from a historical setting point of view? It sounds like there currently you can't bring sacrifices. But wait a minute. David himself just a couple of verses ago said, I could bring sacrifices, but I know that's not what you want me to do. You want me to pray. You want me to repent. King David had no problem bringing sacrifices. In fact, during his life, he brought them. He didn't have a temple to bring them in, but it was permissible to bring them anywhere at that point, as long as they were done properly. So these last two verses seem very, very strange from the context of the psalm. King David is pleading with God to forgive him for Bathsheba. That makes sense. He has a broken spirit. He wants to rebuild it. He wants God to help him pray. If we would have stopped at verse 19, we have a complete psalm. Then you have these other two verses here, which sound like they're 500 years or 400 years after King David. It sounds like here we're talking about the walls of Jerusalem are destroyed. Please rebuild them. And the temple is destroyed. So please rebuild Jerusalem and its temple so that we can bring sacrifices to you. That's what it really sounds like. Even Ezra quotes an anonymous Spanish rabbi. It doesn't say who he's quoting. Who suggested, yes, these two verses were added later. And even Ezra says, yeah, that basically sounds right. Maybe it's prophetic anticipation. We talked about this last week and, and the flaws with saying that it is prophetic anticipation in the context of a psalm. Let's just imagine for a minute that the great Spanish sage, whoever he's quoting, was right, that these two verses were added later. So then what, meaning much later, hundreds and hundreds of years after King David. So then what, what happened to this psalm? Other than it got two verses longer. The people who were writing it later, why couldn't they just write their own psalm? Because they wanted to praise David. They want to praise David? Good, and keep going, Gloria, yeah. So they wanted to praise David, and I'm not sure that any of these are written by David. That's fine, okay. So, so maybe they just wrote them after, many years later, and they wanted to still praise David, and they wrote these songs. Oh, but, so. but, but 
I'm, let's go with what you're saying. I'm, I'm cool with that. But, so let's say you're right. Let's say that it was a later written psalm and they want to praise David. But the last two verses still don't match the whole psalm. The whole psalm is set as, even if it was written by a later author, imagining that this is what King David said, right? And saying, here's a psalm of penitence. Fine. Psalm of penitence that David would have said, you know, after this. Let's just go with what you're saying for argument's sake. But then the last two verses still aren't that. The last two verses... Right. Yeah, it's very possible. And again, the rabbi that Ibn Ezra quotes thinks that. Yeah, Elias? Isn't one of the key thoughts in this psalm the sacrifices offered in righteousness? The the emphasis on sacrifices is the righteousness part. That's what he reiterated before. You don't desire burnt offerings. You want true rights, you want true sacrifices. Sacrifices often righteousness. So the thought of last three centuries are all really focused on that, leaving aside the problem of time. In terms of theology. The theme, for sure you're right. Although, and I, I want to ride with what you're saying, because I think it's, A, very important, not only for this psalm, but just in general how the Tanakh views the world. Yes, that sacrifices must be accompanied with righteousness, and that is the theme of these last several verses. The difference still is, and that's what's so curious about how the psalm is built, and it goes back to what I was talking to Gloria about a moment ago. If you look at verse 18 and 19, let's just read them again. You do not want me to bring sacrifices. You do not desire burnt offerings. True sacrifice to God is a contrite spirit, God. Excuse me, contrite spirit. That semicolon is really baffling, baffling me tonight. Contrite spirit. God, you will not despise a contrite and crushed heart. According to those two verses, what should the sinful David do? He should repent. And then in verse 21, what are we praying for? We want to be able to bring proper sacrifices. That doesn't conflict with the message in 1819, right? You're, you're absolutely right. It's all about righteous sacrifice bringing. But 1819 are about, I don't want to bring righteous sacrifices. I want to truly repent. I need to transform myself. I need to rebuild myself. That's what Teshuvah is about. That's what repentance is about. Whereas 21 is still praying for, sounds like there's no temple. We have no ability to bring sacrifices. Please rebuild the temple so that we can bring righteous sacrifices. It doesn't conflict with 1819, and absolutely not. You're right, and you're hitting on your fingers on the right pulse of what's going on in the psalm. But here's what it says. Yeah, sorry, Beverly. Could, could 20 and 21 be, uh, as you use the word before, more national, as opposed to personal? He's taking it from his own personal prayer to more national. Prayer. Beautiful. So let's imagine this. Let's take Beverly's thing and really run with it for a moment. We can imagine that King David really said verses 3 through 19. Remember, verses 1 and 2 are just introductory verses placed in by the editors. Right? So, but verse 3, which is where the psalm actually begins, all the way through 19, I can imagine King David himself saying it. And when he's a broken man who has personally sinned egregiously and feels like his relationship with God is permanently damaged. And since that is devastating to him, he prays to God to forgive him and to rebuild him, give him a new heart. And he says at the end of it, the punchline is, God, and I understand, this psalm is the right thing to do now. I'm not going over to some temple or shrine to bring animal sacrifices. You don't need my sacrifices. You need me to repair my relationship with you. The end. I would tell you that the psalm is a psalm of personal repentance, because that's exactly what it is. And then these last two verses, let's just write with Beverly and I'll get to you, Shelley. The last two verses are a later author in the exile, or possibly even in Jerusalem, looking at the ruins and seeing a destroyed temple and destroyed walls and saying, whoa, what's wrong with this picture? Lots of stuff. God, please rebuild it. Now, he could have just written a psalm saying all that stuff. But he's plugging it onto King David's psalm. And he's saying, God, we have sinned. We are broken. We need to repair our relationship with you. Please rebuild our walls and our temples so that we can serve you right. By adding these last two verses, it's taking a personal psalm of repentance and transforming it onto the national stage. It's again, the people of Israel at the time of the destruction of the second, of the first temple, or the right before the rebuilding of the second one. You pick a space in there that makes you happy. Where the walls of the city are down and where the temple is in ruins. And they're taking the Psalm of David where he was a broken man and saying, God, we're a broken nation. 
Please repair us. Shelly, what were you going to say? It's pretty much what you both of you really kind of said, but I just wanted to add that there is a, we're talking about transforming, the psalm as a transforming um, vehicle. So it's like the psalmist is transformed and, and he gets out of himself. And that's a kind of transformation too. Even, you know, not that he's forgiven necessarily. He's not accepting that he's been forgiven, but he wants to include Claudius Israel in his truth. Very good. There are many. What you're saying is true here, and it's true in many psalms, where you find it sounds like it's an individual, and then it jumps to Israel or the world or whatever he's jumping to. That happens very often in psalms. Here it seems because of the historical specific contents of 20 and 21, it really does sound like these two verses were added later. That they were written at the time of the exile. Again, the Jerusalem is in ruins, but it's plugging it into this psalm of personal repentance. So we've seen various forms of how psalms transform. When I say transform, they use two kinds of transforming. Sometimes the intended meaning of the psalm transforms on itself. That could come with the bunny duck version. That could come with the prayer or the tears that transform the individual within. That could come by adding a couple words to the introduction, Shir Chanukata Bayit, that this is a song for the dedication of the temple, which then takes a personal psalm of gratitude and turning it into a national one. And in this case, we have a psalm of repentance where two later verses are added, and that just makes the whole psalm mean something different. Suddenly it goes from being repentance of the individual to repentance of the nation. On that happy note...